0: Hey everybody from NPR Music, I'm Robin Hilton, and for the first time ever, the complete back catalog from the legendary rap group De La Soul is finally out on streaming and digital services now.
1: Mirror, mirror on the wall.
0: After decades of legal disputes, the band has finally won back the rights to all of their master recordings. You can stream and download all of the music now. It comes just a few weeks after member Dave Jellicore, known to fans as Trugoy the Dove, died at the age of 54. Contributor Matthew Ritchie has a great essay on the NPR Music site all about what it means to have the music back like this for both longtime fans and new listeners. We've also got a guide to the music, what to listen to now, from Professor and DJ Oliver Wang. That's on the site for you. NPR Music Editor Sheldon Pierce recently sat down with both Matthew Ritchie and Oliver Wang to go deeper on the music, offer some context on why it took so long to be available, and how De La Soul sounds more than 30 years after releasing the group's debut album. Before we
2: dive into, unpack, and appreciate these iconic records, we have to address the elephant in the room, which is the music's nearly two-decade absence from any sort of digital media not just streaming but like the digital iTunes and and like Amazon marketplace before that. Oliver, can you
3: speak a bit to like why this process took so long? I think the easier answer, which I don't think is entirely accurate, but the easy answer is because part of what La was known for, especially earlier in their career, was their just Abundant sampling, right? And they really reinvented in a lot of ways the art of sampling-based production. They're drawing from sources from everywhere—television shows, you know, kids' records. I mean, whatever. Like, it was all part of of the fodder that went into uh, creating those early, those early albums. But because sample clearances was not yet a precedent until the Turtles sued De La Soul over some of that, it created a lot of legal complications for the group over time. However, I think the more accurate answer is that it's also very much probably predominantly tied up with long-term contractual disagreements between themselves and what used to be their parent label, Tommy Boy, because plenty of groups from that same era had a lot of samples that were not originally cleared, and yet all of them, like all of them, have been on the major streaming services for years now, the fact that Daylaw was the one kind of holdout, so to say, has more to do with the legal status of their catalog than anything else. So the samples could be used as the, the the excuse for it, but it's not the real reason. The real reason is just a lot of contractual density and convoluted you know, legal issues that the group has been engaged with with Tommy Boy practically since they signed with them back in the late 80s.
2: Right, it just seems like a huge amount of red tape, an ongoing battle between artist and label that has obviously the sample clearing issue at the heart of it. Finally, the music has been unearthed from that process. Matthew, as someone who's diving into the catalog anew, I'm curious what stood out about the music to you. I, I don't want to say that they're perfect
4: because because <laughs> no because <laughs> no discography is perfect, but those first. Four to five albums get pretty damn close. This is the styling for a title that
5: sounds silly. But well, nothing silly about the trifling times of Millie. Millie at Brooklyn Queen, originally from Philly. Complete with an accent that made her sound hillbilly. Around this time, the slamming drug was milk is chilly. But even cooler was my social worker Dylan. Yeah, I had a social worker, cause I had some trouble. Anyone who ripped for me, I popped it, don't like bubble.
4: And it's sort of a weird thing where you expect oh maybe i won't be able to relate to the way that de la soul is rapping i won't be able to rate relate to the production styles the samples but even in 1989 to 1996 and 2001 their music stretches across eras simply because it's just a little bit off kilter it's just a little bit better and it's a little bit more intriguing than a lot of the things that you're hearing at this current moment and so being able to just experience that for the first time, you're like, wow, I'm hearing something new that's also sort of a, a historical document at the same
1: time. with around you. your father, happened? Did he you?
2: Oliver, as someone who was around when these records were released and understood all that context, I'm curious how you are finding the
3: the release of this music now. At the very least, I do think what makes this so important is it finally gives listeners who haven't had the same opportunities to just easily call up a De La Soul song. One of the things that I mentioned in the piece I wrote for NPR was for the website is how music is distributed historically has always been fundamental to how we as listeners get to engage with it. So if you didn't have a record player and the primary way in which music was made available was on a record, well, then that was a problem. Like you, you couldn't connect with it. Same thing in the era of CDs or cassettes. Well, these days everything's digital. And so if an artist in this case doesn't have access to that digital jukebox to make their music available, then people don't, in a sense, don't really have ability to engage with it and, and, in a sense, know that they exist, right? So I think, for me at least, I mean, I've already, I've always had this music digitized for myself. Right. So it's not like I didn't have access to it. But now I know that someone like my daughter, who's 18, and her friends, if they want to listen to a DLS Soul song, boom. They can just go on their phone or the computer, whatever, it's available to them, you know, at their proverbial fingertips. And I think that, to me, is so fundamental in how De La's, you know, their, the, the quality of their music, the importance of their legacy, whatever, however you want to approach it, this now puts them back into a conversation that they have been very sorely absent from for, you know, not for their own reasons. Right. Let's talk for a brief second about the issue at the heart of this There are more than
2: 200 samples across the De La Albums that have been added here. It was a very meticulous process putting those songs back together and then clearing each one in their own right. But they couldn't clear every one, in some cases because it wasn't worth it, in some cases because they weren't allowed. And so they had to make slight alterations to many of these songs, including some of the biggest hits. I was curious if you guys had any thoughts about Changing this music, whether it's right, the ideas around authorship and thinking about sampling in this way as its own thing.
3: Part of the problem that's faced a lot, not alone, but many other artists, but especially them, is that American copyright law is incredibly outdated. It was never designed to deal with sampling as an artistic or creative art form. It still hasn't figured this out. Like Copyright law is in vast need of an overhaul. I am not an expert on this, but I have many friends and peers who this is literally all they study is copyright law. And they have said time and time again that when it comes to sampling practices, the current legal standards around these are Byzantine. They're capricious. They don't make sense. And unfortunately, day law has basically caught most or a lot of, they've had to pay the price for kind of this legal gray zone that's existed now for decades. And it's kind of amazing that Congress or whoever hasn't gotten their ish together to, to update this to make it like realistic to what, how is music actually produced these days? Because people are sampling more than ever. You turn on any kind of pop chart, you are hearing samples everywhere and yet the legal system has yet to catch up with something that has become completely ubiquitous practice within the music industry. It's maddening. And again, I think Dela unfortunately has paid a very heavy price for all of that ambiguity. I think for me,
4: you know, sampling is synonymous to rap music, and it has been from the very beginning. But sampling feels sort of taboo. Modern rap producers, They love to sample, but then they hate to share where the sample comes from. And I think that's like a generational divide where rappers before were really open about where their samples came from. And now it feels like it's less of a sharing thing and more of a, it's a secret because I don't want to be hit with a copyright rule.
3: Yeah. I have to respectfully, deeply disagree with that. (laughs) There's some kind of generational divide. I mean, for one thing, you go all the way back to the DJs in the South Bronx in the 1970s. Your cool Hercs, Grandmaster Flashes. I mean, one of the notorious things they were known for is that they covered up the labels of the records that they were playing. And those breakbeats were really, in, in many ways, right, the, the progenitor of how we think of sampling practices. And during the so-called golden age of the 80s and 90s, when, when of course, De La was one of the central iconic figures within there. No. Artists absolutely were not sharing what they sampled. Sampling was competitive. If you could land a sample that none of your other colleagues had used previously, those were prop points. So it was very much a competitive art. It was not out in the open. What brought it out in the open was a combination of, number one, lawsuits that required – sample credit to be listed in the liner notes, which means that fans could read it. But that's not because the artists wanted you to know what they were sampling. That's because they were required legally to do so. And then number two, it was people like myself and many others who really discovered a whole, you know, multiple worlds of music through sampling, soul, funk, jazz, Latin, etc And we made it a point to begin digging in the proverbial crates to figure out what were these people using? And then we shared, we as the listeners shared that knowledge, but it wasn't because artists were out there being like, oh yes, I want you to know what I'm using. That it was not the ethos at all. People wanted to keep that secret, A, because they didn't want to get sued and B, because it was part of the culture in terms of I'm doing something creatively here and I don't want you to figure out what it is that I'm doing. Like that's my secret. That's my secret sauce here. Yeah, I do think these two versions together do feel
2: like they tell a story of Sampling's arc in the public eye, and uh, it's also interesting that even their biggest hits aren't immune to this kind of stuff. This is the magic number. See if you can tell what changed about it.
3: What
0: is it fun to the
1: magic number.
2: think about these records, I think well, one thing that really holds up, no matter how you feel about the ways in which they've changed, is the fun-loving nature of the early stuff. Oliver, can you talk a little bit about
3: the Native Tongues movement, sort of how it arose and what it was countering, what it stood for? Sure, the Native Tongues was a collective that comprised, uh, especially like in that late 80s, early 90s moment, De La was a core member. Uh, Jungle Brothers were the first of the Native Tongues posse to put out a recording. A uh, Tribe Called Quest was part of that. And then later you had people like Queen Latifah, Black Sheep, Chiali that were also in the mix more or less. And I think the, the one line that I always think about is from De La Soul's song, Buddy. And it's just one simple line. I mean, it's, it's like half a line you know, black medallions, no gold. And so they're talking about black African medallions, which a lot of, you know, very Afrocentric artists began wearing in the late 80s. And no gold, meaning, not, you know, not those gold, dookie gold chains that we're, we associate with your Run DMCs, your right. L.O. Cool Js, your Eric B. and Rock Kim's. And it's not so much that they were necessarily, I think, dissing their contemporaries. I mean, maybe, I mean, there's some rivalries or whatever, but they're just making a statement in terms of what we'd represent Right, is not necessarily about conspicuous consumerism, right? It's not about materialism. We're here with an ethos about positivity, about Afrocentricity, and that in the 80s, I mean, hip hop is as a recorded medium is barely 10 years old. And so it is just this open landscape for people to be able to experiment within. And what Native Tongues did is they looked at sort of the landscape of what was out there. So you have. Your run DMCs and your LLs and whoever else, your NWAs, and they're thinking, this doesn't speak to me. Like that, I they're not questioning whether it's a valid, you know, expressive form, but what they're saying is this doesn't speak to my sensibilities. And can we carve out a lane to talk about the things that we want to talk about? And took, I think, a very brave step into kind of this terra incognito because they they couldn't have been certain that their messaging, their style was going to go over. And as it turns out, there were so many other people, listeners and artists alike, who are, in a sense, waiting for someone to kind of open that door to show us what was the potential of what hip-hop could be, what it could sound like, what it could represent. This is what Native Tongues helped to do in transforming hip-hop in that moment. Right. It did sort of feel like this
2: breath of fresh air. I think, I think even listening to the records now, you can get a sense of how different they were. Oh, yeah. Uh, how much of a transition it was, how they were speaking something new into the room. Matthew, I'm curious, diving into these songs, um, did the early music, particularly the stuff from Three Feet High, live up to the feel-good vibes of like Me, Myself, and I, and The Magic Number? Like those songs exist out in the culture. You know, one appears at the end of a Spider-Man movie you mentioned in your piece. Hearing me, myself, and I for the first time playing uh, the NCAA EA games, can you talk through sort of like hearing Three Feet High in its entirety and whether it sort of matches that those, those joys? Yeah, so I think the first time I was able to actually hear
4: it, it was like, oh, I'm now getting a step-by-step look inside these three rappers' minds. And it matches, like, the Daisy regalia. It matches their weird dress. And it sort of just felt like three high schoolers being like, all right, this is my life. This is how it is. But in a way that wasn't corny, it wasn't posturing in any way. It sort of just felt like a retelling of their own personalities. And I think that's something that a current rap listener can really fall in love with on a first listen because... I think in the current rap landscape, you have so many different scenes and different offshoots of the rap genre now that are staked in um trying to find your fit and personality and whatever that is via esoteric production styles or different ways of restructuring your voice and autotune and all that. But the way Three Feet High and Rising sort of did it is like, all right, well, now... We're not against how like the gangster rap and how other other sort of styles work but this is sort of just how we're doing it. And I kind of go to plug tune in as one of my favorites just because it just feels authentically them. Answering service prerogative praise positively i'm acquitted enemies
5: publicly shame my utility after the battle then riches i'm with it simply sue well moved final like rude. transistors are never more shown with life Wind vocal flow brings it all down in ruins due to a clue of a naughty noise called platoon And
4: yeah, it never felt like there was any posturing, it never felt like they were trying to put on a persona, which is something that I think every rap fan at their crux can sort of latch onto, which is just an authenticity and doing this in your first album sort of is unbeatable in my eyes.
5: That the three will be your thread. But like my man Chuck D said, What a brother, no dance while I play in a cute card sway from my flower girls, China and Jet. The button is pressed in 89 will start the panic. From de la soul and a from step. Negative
2: It's sort of interesting because we rap better than you, that's inherent to so much of rap history that's like in the core. That's it feels like that's bravado at the heart of literally every MC's mission, right? Like I'm the, I'm I'm spitting harder than you. And they do have mm. that. It does seem like they are rapping in opposition to the gangster rap stuff and a lot of the early stuff. But to me, what is interesting is that stuff is coming from a place of self, of like deep no, deeply knowing who you are. And what you're about it's more about performing from a a genuine place than it is about like existing in opposition to something else right sometimes people will erect a wall just to say that that thing is not good enough but it was more about what they were representing i'm curious what you guys say to folks who sort of make light of the debut as in there's some goofball moments on this record. Tread water, potholes.
1: I'm writing it's gone.
5: in my lawn. I found that it's not wise to leave my garden untended, cause I has now on laws of privacy. Even pause are after my right that-
2: To me, that stuff is endearing. I, I love that stuff too. It's a part of the personality, it's a part of the fun. And to me, the, so much for these early records is about how much fun they seem to be having rapping together.
3: For some, that's a drawback, but I'm curious to hear how you guys feel about it. Wait, are, are there people. Are there people dissing tread water in potholes? Did I, did I miss out on this part of the discourse here? What's, what's going on? There,
2: I I didn't want to single out any songs in particular, but there there are a contingent of, and maybe this just comes with every every age group sort of looking at the music of their predecessors and saying well this this is corny compared to what we have but there is this idea that three feet high in particular is sort of an artifact of the time and it's in sort of the daisy age hippie dippy mishigas there's there's sort of like a goofball energy to it that that puts some
3: people up I mean, it is. A, I, I think that's accurate. It is a goofball energy, right? I mean, they were <laughs> the, the, the three of them plus Prince Paul, were I think very, you know, consciously trying to figure out like what are the limits to how eccentric or eclectic that we can be, and throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. I mean, those first two albums, in particular, uh, you know, I think Matthew mentioned you know twenty three tracks in one album. I forget how many songs were on De La Soul Is Dead*, but these are long albums in the sense that. They're both temporally long, but there's many, many different tracks and skits and all these things in it, and it does feel like yeah. there's just a lot of. We're just going to toss a lot of stuff out there just to see what sticks. And as it is, you know, they were, I, but I think from a creative point of view, that goofiness is really a reflection of just an attempt at breaking out of whatever confines they think might have existed then to see. Let's let's just push to limits and see what we can come up with. And I love that kind of. I mean, that that whole creative goofiness is. Is exactly why the group was so influential. If you had stripped off all of the humor out of those albums, you would have been left with some very good songs. But the group would never have made the same impact if not for that right. level of creativity and humor and the willingness to be seen as goofy, both at the time and I suppose now, you know, with the benefit of, I don't know, what, 30 years of hindsight.
1: Yeah. By the
5: in house, in
0: house. And our conversation with Sheldon Pierce, Matthew Ritchie, and Oliver Wang about the music of De La Soul will continue after this short break. Support for NPR and the following message come
6: from Guayaquil Yerba Mate. When Argentine college student Alex Pryor introduced Yerba Mate to his classmates in California, he saw the potential in sharing this traditional caffeinated beverage with people across the U.S., but he also wanted to produce mate without contributing to deforestation, which leads to loss of biodiversity and displacement of communities who depend on the forest for their livelihoods. So he worked with four classmates to develop a company whose business model aims to preserve the forests where mate grows and support the communities who have cultivated it for generations. That's why Guayaquil sources fair trade and organic mate from smallholder and indigenous producers who harvest mate from trees grown in the shade of the rainforest. Guayaquil also works with its producers to certify mate produced according to regenerative standards and invests in social and environmental projects identified by producer communities. To learn more, visit
2: guayaquil.com. So De La Soul is Dead is probably easily the thorniest of these records from a listening perspective. This is Oodle's of the O's.
1: and oodles of O's, you know. You get 'em from my sister, you get 'em from my bro. All I is is man at once an embryo. Am my solid gold? I don't cast the flow. Yes, I guess it's reflect some have a control. i have rather let a laughter, it's telling off my hole. Canoein' up the river out into the hoe. You just know not, so not in the
2: roll. I find it the most rewarding. It obviously deconstructs the world's perception of the group and also the group's perception of itself. But mostly it's like this tacit acknowledgement from them that they don't think it's all roses and that they never did, that people sort of misread some of the messages in the first record. I'm curious what you guys make about this sort of about face. Oliver, you imply in your piece that the symbolic death and reinvention is a bit overblown and I agree.
3: Yeah, because there certainly there are specific songs on their Oodles of O's is a great example. There's what Afro Connections at a High Five that are very expressly about demonstrating a kind of bravado that is to demonstrate like I mean what what is the what's one of the phrases actually used in the albums basically that you know we can throw bows too, right? We can we can we can fight, right? right? So there is kind of this puffed chest, you know, like you you thought we were one way but we're really another Aspect to some of the album, but when you really dig into it, it's just as creatively out there as Three Feet High. So even though there, there, like I said, there are a few choice songs that are are a pushback against the image that was created by Tommy Boy f- for them on the first album. Who li- who symbolically kills himself off after just putting out a gold record? Well, De La's about to right. right. So there is some of that pushback. But I think once you get past those more pointed jabs at their previous image, a lot of that same creative eccentricity that we were talking about with Three Feet High, it is just as much in this album as anything. And I think this, the, the running skit you know through it is this group of listeners who are these bunch of misanthropes who find a demo version of De La Soul is Dead, and they're crapping on the album all throughout.
5: Blah. Ah man, this album sucks, man. It's starting to sound just like MC Shan's.
2: I don't like it. I don't like it.
5: Yo, yo, I know that. Tim, who do you worship, man? I think I'll smoke devilish shit or something. Afro's that. Afro's got a slamming beat,
0: but what are they saying? Yo, Yo, Afro's.
3: So there's kind of this very self-aware, self-deprecatingness to it that is, you know, incredibly funny in terms of the jokes that they're cracking and all these things. So I don't think that. The idea that it they went like 180 it just isn't true at all. Did they veer? Sure. But I think that's the one thing about Dela that was so powerful across the albums that we're talking about here is they found some, you know, big and small ways to reinvent themselves album to album, which is, I think, is a goal that a lot of artists, well, maybe not all artists, but many artists have, is to reinvent themselves. Dela, I think, is one of the more successful examples of how you were able to pull that off over you know, a four or five, six album run.
2: Matthew... I'm sort of curious, uh, as you're diving into this, what do you make of this transition from Three Feet High to De La Soul is Dead? Because if there is one thing that's true about De La Soul is Dead in comparison to the debut, it's a little bit darker. There's clearly uh, a bit more tension in this record. You've got songs about sexual abuse songs more songs about violence generally than on the previous record matthew can you talk through experiencing that transition so first of all to oliver's point that i love the idea that it was not
4: necessarily like a full 180 but it's definitely a veer towards a different angle but i think it's just so interesting that it kind of acts like a trojan horse because you're like oh like our soul is dead the daisies are gone you have you left the little album cover of the daisies dying knocked over in a pot but then you still get that eccentricity but now the ex- eccentricity comes with a little bit of darkness and I don't know I think it's I think it is just an incredibly brave thing to do to be like oh and we're gonna kill we're gonna kill ourselves off but then sort of stay in the same lane stay in the back and forth wrapping between plug one and plug two you get the crux of day law but with a little bit more bite and i think evolution is incredibly important to an artist at least coming from like my perspective i love when an artist is able to change i love when an artist is able to try new things but this sort of evolution was always really intriguing to me because it still sounded like a De La Soul album, but it kind of felt like you were watching De La Soul grow up, both in terms of like their subject matter and their ability to branch out and try new things.
2: It's definitely true that this record is a pushback to the first record, but more so, it feels like stepping into your skin a little bit more becoming a little bit more comfortable with yourself and in so doing revealing more of the darker aspects of what you see inside and what you see around you it really just felt like these long island kids just like really looking around at the world as they were experiencing it and saying yes we know like we get that (laughs) it's not all hippie shit it can be positive but it can go this other way too and we've experienced both sides of that and but even throughout that, they never lose that sense of fun that is inherent to their records. They never step beyond who they are in trying to make this point about how hard they are. There is a version of this record that goes so far outside the lines that it becomes the thing that they hate, right? Um, but instead, they manage to make this record within themselves. And it's like you create another classic what do you do after you kill yourself off? Well, uh, the thing that was left for them was to get even weirder, right? To take bits to such extremes that really you're the only ones that know what's happening in them anymore. That's Balloon mind state, and this is Area.
1: Just another area for me to patrol. Just another area, the shows I got sold. Just another area for me to patrol. Just another area, the shows I got sold. I got sold, you see, I'm swimming in the
5: daylight. I'm in my hood, man, my manhood worries yeah. I'm known for assembling the soul food of the old school place. What I met up with my niggas from the 718s. One, one, one in the jungle, bro, the other quester from Queens, yet I had the matrix of the 5-1-6 in my jeans. So,
2: so there's this natural progression across the first three records, right? Each a sort of reaction. Three Feet countering the rap at the moment with positivity is dead, taking offense to the subsequent hippie characterization and taking on an edge. And then Mindstate has pause laying the change out flat. Right, forget being hard. He's complicated, and fittingly, this is a head trip record. It's a concept album where the concept is a secret. <laughs> so it's like, how, where do you guys start to sort of unravel the mysteries of Balloon Mind State? Balloon Mind State. Well,
4: when I was talking to older rap fans as De La Soul is coming out, uh, you know, other writers, they're like, Balloon Mind State is my favorite, and. Balloon Mind State was one of those
2: critical
4: favorite, right? It's it's a critical favorite, but I, it's one that I had never heard and didn't even understand. Like it wasn't it wasn't even a concept in my mind, and so I get to Balloon Mind State and I'm like, well, what am I going to hear? And so if you go with it with an open mind, it makes perfect sense. Like yeah, of course there's going to be like a five minute jazz solo from the great Maceo Parker, like, of course, like, of course, there's going to be a Japanese rap trio spitting for a minute and you barely, two minutes and you barely even hear De La Soul. And so it just felt like such a mind trip because you were expecting a De La Soul album and it doesn't match any of your previous expectations of the ones before, but yet it still feels like it's directly in line with that sort of creative randomness that they held for so long.
3: I always think about how at the very beginning of the album, the group lays down this very short mini manifesto, which is, you know, and riffing on the album title, we might blow up, but we won't go pop. And then what follows is certainly nothing that conforms to any sort of kind of you know (laughs) aiming for the charts you know uh pop template i gave up trying to figure out this this album years ago in the sense that you know it, it was easier for me both then but even now in writing about these different albums and like what do they represent there's kind of this very easy narrative that you can talk about with three feet it's even easier with de la soul is dead because they basically give you a head start by telling you that we're killing off our previous iteration. But then you get the balloon and you're like, okay, I, 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 I can't create like any kind of simply easily digestible narrative to explain the album, except that it's, I think as both of you are talking about, it's very consistent with the kind of creative energy and the risk taking that they've had. But they also, you know, make some, Big left turns on here as well, especially around the length of the album. I mean, after putting out two supersized LPs, this album is is terse. It's, it's like 10 full tracks. It's super short relative to what they had put out before. And I actually don't know how much of that was a deliberate artistic statement, how much of that was maybe a label thing. I have no idea. I should probably look that up. But this is going to sound really contradictory. It is both a familiar experience within just going from the, those albums. Like, Balloon doesn't feel like it's wildly different. But right. I think it's the most enigmatic album they've put out, partly because it is hard to kind of wrap yourself your head around. So what is the concept supposed to be here? And Sheldon, to your point, like... I do think it's a, a concept album. They just didn't bother to mention to anyone anyway, what that concept was, right. and, and maybe that's <laughs> the point. They leave it up to us as a listener to engage with it and take from it what we want to. You know, I'm just thankful for it because it has some of the greatest songs in, in the group's entire catalog. Whether it's "I Am," "I Be," or you know, "Ego Trip" in part two. <laughs>
1: to make you jump because i'm heading bound
3: Tied of the merry-go-round and around and everybody's talking about your stuff funny but they're still telling lies to me I so i mean there's so many great songs regardless if if you can figure out how it coheres into like some kind of unified whole or not at minimum you're leaving with some like bangers basically
2: <laughs> to, to that point it feels like a good place to talk about sort of the interplay of De La's two rappers, Paz Denus and Trugoy the Dove, they have such great chemistry on these records, and they have they obviously have similar thought processes, similar mindsets. But to me, the major difference between Paz and Trugoy was always that in the midst of supposedly not being taken seriously or whatever, Paz sort of would demand his respect in his verses, and Dave just seemed to think it was all sort of funny, right? And I think Ego Trippin' Part 2 is sort of the blueprint of that.
5: Well, I'm a better brand, cause I'm a Superman I run the block with my circle, cause I'm Nubian I got the platinum rust, so don't even fuss Cause DJ Paul, is down with us Now people stop taking my style and for a joke I don't sass The frass, I put the foot up the ass Sometimes I fast walk off like a seal When they reminisce over so you For real
4: Everyone loves a good pairing and I think what makes a pairing work is that yes, they need to have their similarities but they were sort of ebbing and flowing in between each other and you're going in between I demand to be here and the other person is I'm alright with being here but you're going to recognize that we're one of the best and I think just having that foil of you get two amazing MCs at the same time delivering in not opposite styles,
2: but they're running sort of parallel to each other towards the same goal. It's interesting that you say that because I feel for a long time, the discourse was that Paz, everybody knew. One of the best ever, like sort of, if, if you knew, you knew he had the bars. But I think, especially in the wake of losing Dave, we are getting a, a true appreciation for what he brings to a lot of these tracks. Just a, an effortless, sort of lighthearted energy. All of his verses, I mean, it seems like he is wrapping them like in a recliner, like he's so comfortable. He, he makes it seem like it's just something that he's doing with his buddies but then the verses themselves can be so packed full of information and detail. I think people will really come to appreciate those verses after losing him. It's sad that he won't be able to see that response. Oliver, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, on these two great MCs.
3: There are some groups in which the contrast between MCs is really stark. And to go back to our discussion of native tongues, right? I think Q-Tip and Fife, not only do they sound different, but their approach to lyricism is very different. And yet that kind of oil and water mix really worked for tribe. Partly maybe because Trugoy and Paz's voices are kind of in a similar timbre, you don't necessarily differentiate between the two quite as easily as you might with other groups. And yet, right. the subtleties about what they bring to, him, and this is part of what we've all been discussing here. You know, maybe this is a, a bit of a lazy Freudian comparison, but I think of Trugoy as the id and pause as the ego of the group. And so one represents I mean, the kind of very conscious thematics of what it is that we're trying to get across. That'd be pause. Yeah. And then Trugoy, to your previous point, Sheldon, is sort of like, hey, I'm the playful, I'm the embodiment of sort of the in a soul y'all, you know, ethos from from the first album. And, you know, I'm here, you know, representing this kind of maybe not hedonistic, but there's kind of this almost libidinal energy to the way in which Trugoy approaches his persona. And it's not as obvious of a contrast as other groups, as I was saying. So, you know, they're kind of even more subtle than, let's say, the difference between an outcast, between Andre and Big Boy. And, I just think they're offering you these two different kinds of lyrical approaches and thematic approaches, but they're not making it so obvious that here's Pauses' turn and then here's Trugoy's turn and we're going back and forth, A and B-ing it. I think this is part of what makes De So powerful as like a collective unit, as a group, because you're not necessarily always thinking about the differences between the MCs. You're thinking about how do this how does this pair come together. To deliver me something that i'm going to enjoy listening to
2: right that's a great way to think about it and the one thing that i think sort of truly represents what dave brought to this group is there the story in the times uh in the new york times uh explaining their how these records came back to streaming there's a great line where the remaining members of dave Soul explained that they wanted to call it from the soul and it was a Dave, who was like, you know, this is missing a little something. It should be Dela. And it's, you know, in that sort of adding a little flair, giving it just a, a touch of something extra. I think you sort of get to what he is able to bring to a lot of these records. Eventually, though, you know, a veteran artist will start to outgrow its youth culture and have to make sense of the changes that are surrounding them, not just the changes that are undergoing their group And stakes is high Their fourth album sort of reckons With a shifting rap landscape This is Super MC, MC Hey, whatever happened to me? Times
0: done changed for me Every woman in
1: Maine Won't I? MC, for what I tell you MC, MC Hey, whatever happened to me? Times done change for me Yeah. Yeah. Set like the fix the let your cameras flash a splash bigger than waves and make the monsters match in pinocchio theory when should be looking weary i need rest but i'm you for now i'm also mess like the best mics would sponsor me living days like dreams and specializing in the art that pays i'll be enlisted for life so check my id number mcs be needing dough while i make bread like wonder
2: yes so six is high is sort of this missing link in the emergence of like the so-called conscious rap movement of uh, the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, the Times piece I mentioned sort of called it, the, said it basically invented alternative hip-hop, which I think is giving it a bit too much credit. But in that vein, you understand the idea. I mean, the signal boost for Most Deaf in Common, sort of the Jay Dilla beat, uh, the shots at Puff and the shiny suit stuff and uh, uh, gangster rap. Oliver, in your piece you talked about this record sort of conspicuously drawing a line in the sand during a hip-hop culture war. What do you think sort of prompted that boundary setting in that moment?
3: Well, I think partly, you know, there was a slightly longer hiatus between this and Balloon Mind State compared to the previous albums. And specifically that, that gap between what ninety-three and ninety-six, right? This is where Nas comes to the foray, where Biggie comes to the foray, where the Wu-Tang clan comes to the foray, right? And and, and, and the chronic. So all of these things are happening in between the two releases, Mob Deep. And this really fundamentally transforms the tone and tenor of hip hop on every coast, the South, the West, New York, etc., And I think De La were, you know, they already came out the gate kind of being critical of what they saw in hip hop in the late eighties. So it's not to me a big surprise that they would look at these major transformations happening in that middle in that middle 90s section and thinking like, I, I don't like where this is going. I don't like what this represents. And stakes is high, I mean, embodied in the title of the album and in, in the title song is they're laying down another manifesto in terms of this is what we represent we want to re-establish a kind of moral center to hip-hop one that we you know, because we we feel like the general atmosphere out there is it's too cynical it's too nihilistic right stakes is high is really i think a, a fight against the idea of, of this kind of hip-hop nihilism that begins to emerge through this kind of darker more gangster rap orientations however you want to describe it and stakes as high is meant to be a pushback and a corrective to that and certainly you know de la were not alone in that i mean there was a huge backlash against all of this stuff across the 90s it's just that stake is stakes as high happens to be i think one of the more most prominent examples of that
2: matthew i'm sure this record sort of aligns with A lot of the stuff that you have heard from this era, Um, even as a younger rap fan, I'm curious how it fits into the landscape for you. I think that Stakes is High,
4: It it has a standing in this era as the seminal, conscious rap. And Stakes is High is one of those albums that when you're a new rap fan... And you're hearing about De La Soul and people are telling you, oh, you got to listen to Stakes is High. You, gotta listen, you got to listen. This is De La Soul at its finest. And, you know, that first listen, you're like, OK, I understand. Because definitely fighting against that level of gangster rap nihilism that's been around. But it's also a celebration of like what made them good. It's a celebration of their scene that makes them better than a lot of other people in the genre is what I found from Stakes is High. And it's a return to that longer type of album, that cinematic, hour-long stretch of music where you're like, all right, I'm back in De La Soul's world, trying to understand what the ins and outs of their mentalities, of their, just of their ethos. And so it's part of my piece from the couplet of Din in It, where it's like, I'm pouring out these rhymes for them kids who ain't here, stakes is high, but we're going to try to have fun this year. Hey,
1: yo. Hey, hey. yeah.
5: High, but we gonna try to have fun this year Before there were guns, there was native tongues on these planes Putting others on without them being pawns in this game Cause a pawn in this game is left with no game to play So, uh, you best to check and hear what we gotta say Now if you came to party, just let it be known Now if you came to fight, you might get that head blown by them.
4: And so, yeah, it, it almost feels kind of serious, but they want to get to that crux where it's like, all right, well, this is supposed to be fun. You're supposed to enjoy rapping. You're supposed to enjoy creating. It's not all it doesn't always have to be doom and gloom. Right. I,
2: I do think it's sort of interesting because this is definitely a show and prove record like this. This record, they are clearly out to let everybody know that the bars are here. Like they're bringing bars on this record and, and they, wanna know, they want you to know they're rolling with the folks who got the bars, and if you don't got the bars, you're not rocking with them. That's the energy of this record for sure. But I mean, ideologically, it feels like a song like Doggy Dog could appear on three feet high. Like It feels like Breaks could be like an Is Dead song. This album is not out of touch with the rest of this discography, even in sort of pushing back against the the landscape as it is rising, it's like, We're still De La Soul. We still set the benchmark for what this is, and I feel in doing that, they understand you can't you can't make a De La Soul record without fun, right? And so even their shots at what other people are doing wrong have this sort of like jokey, like feel good energy. I always tell people it's the parody songs from them always felt so funny to me because they were almost so good that they inadvertently seemed like to validate the music that they were criticizing. But that is like the the power of the music itself. It's this is how good we are at being us. We'll even do you better than you could do you. And so, I mean, at the turn of the millennium, the group didn't really have anything left to prove, right? But by that point, you you release those four albums. Your legacy is cemented in stone, except maybe to your label, apparently, because (laughs) those disputes are ongoing. They announced the Artificial Intelligence Trilogy, which was originally slated to be a three-disc affair um, with heavy emphasis on collaboration because, I mean, they released every idea out to that point, but they only got to two, Mosaic Thump and Bionics. And from Mosaic Thump, this is All Good We're Shaka Khan.
1: front the situation how you want the you claim is just a word the third inviting visualize the verb
2: i think records 5 and 6 are sort of underrated the afterthought records if you will like mosaic thump maybe more than bionics and you get it right the first four just feel a level beyond standard bearing stuff really setting the pace for everything that would come after and these records feel more in touch with what is already happening sort of matching the energy of artists that they like sort of signal boosting stuff that interesting interests them and just sort of making records to make records and i just wanted to get your guys take on these albums which are sort of less appreciated than the other four
3: i mean not my favorites at all (laughs) (laughs) And I think part of it is, you know, the group even admitted at the time that they were not aiming to create the same kinds of albums that they had previously. And there's a lot of kind of stories behind whether or not the original trilogy was an attempt by the group to basically fulfill their contractual obligations to to Tommy Boy in one fell swoop. Like, that's why it was going to be a triple album. That way they could just get out from under the label. Uh, I'm totally willing to believe that because artists have done exactly those delivered albums just to like, fulfill a contract. But regardless, I just never felt like the AOI, the two albums that we ended up getting, I'm not going to say that it didn't feel like Dela, but I'm going to say that I didn't like the songs as much or the cohesive kind of listening to them as albums in the same way that I enjoyed the, the first four. Certainly, part of it could have been the time at which this comes out, you know, we're now at the turn of the millennium. I'm older. They're older. Hip hop has changed around them. And I don't think these are bad albums in terms of from a crafts a craft point of view. I just personally find them less interesting. They do feel at this point a little bit more aimed at the pop charts. And I'm not I just want to be very clear. I'm not saying that these sold out. I'm just saying that the songs themselves feel more of their time in a way where I felt like in every previous one their songs define the times. Now it felt like they're just basically trying to fit into the mix of wherever hip hop was at by this point uh, in the late '90s, early 2000s.
2: Yeah, there's there's not yeah. a lot of oh. subverting happening on this record. No, but- <laughs> they 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 definitely seem to be cow towing to everything that is going on around them, which is not the De La Soul that we have come to know to that point. Right, Matthew, you were about to say something.
4: Yeah, I was just really just going to say that
2: these albums sort of
4: felt like victory laps, in a sense. It just sort of felt like they were resting on their laurels, not in a bad way, of course, but they're like, all right, we've 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 changed the game so much, maybe it's time to try out and see what the game looks like, you know, from the inside instead of shaping it from the outside. And yes, I don't love them as much as the previous four albums. I think I'm sort of similar on the sort of riding along with Oliver there, but I think it's just cool in the sense where they invited so many other people into a De La Soul album. They had a pretty great shooting percentage at executing them well, and like you don't expect Red Man, Exhibit, Shaka Khan all on the same album with a De La Soul album, but it worked.
3: If I can just make this comparison, because my day job is I'm a college professor, I I feel like the AOI albums are sort of like when you've had a straight A student in your class who just is killing on every paper. And then you get a paper which is like, okay, this is kind of a B. So it's not bad, right? They're not failing the class. It's just that you've expected a certain standard, and now you've gotten something that's a little bit less than that standard. So the fact that like their fifth and sixth efforts might've slipped a little bit, like that's fine. Like they've already proven, they've already established their bona fides. You know, everything else is kind of like playing with house money to an extent.
2: 100%. De La Soul's music is available on all major streaming platforms. You can find our streaming guide by De La Soul, written by Oliver Wang, and an essay about listening to the group with fresh ears by Matthew Ritchie on the NPR website, npr.org/music. My thanks to Oliver Wang and Matthew Ritchie. Thank you guys for coming. It's been so much fun. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And for NPR Music, I'm Sheldon
0: Pierce. <laughs>